0: Wow, thank you, Andrew. Thank you for being here, for staying. I know that it's been a full day, and all three sessions that we've had so far have been outstanding and complimentary. I mean, that's really a great thing about a day like today, is the way that the sessions overlap, and that you've got so many things to talk about in the Gospel of John that it's really impossible to exhaust after years of study. I mean, four sessions, we're just touching the hem of the garment. Uh, I love the congregation here at Graymere. Uh I love Columbia. A lot of stories I'd love to tell about uh, growing up here and uh, fond memories of of Columbia, and it's just great to come back to this community and see all the great things that are happening here now and throughout this area. I know some of you have traveled great distance to be here today, and uh, that's encouraging. I only had a couple of hours to travel, uh, but that's really encouraging to think about uh, how the work is going throughout this area for God's people. Uh, This is a challenging topic, uh, thinking about challenging text. And I suppose that uh, there's a sense in which every text uh, in the New Testament is challenging. And it's not because of the author. It's not because of our our God or because of these inspired men who wrote these books. It's because sometimes I'm just aloof. Uh, I'm the problem. Uh, And so when I think about challenges, I want to make it clear from the very beginning that these are not challenging texts because of the author, and they are not challenging texts because Of the inspiration that we know supports these passages the reason we have challenges is because of the way they've been passed on or perhaps the way that they've been translated or the way that they've been discussed historically and so there are some challenging passages i think that's also the result of our trying to understand a god who is clearly higher than we are our creator and sustainer but he has communicated to us perfectly in his word i I affirm wholeheartedly the inerrancy of Scripture. I believe that every word of Scripture is not only God breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, but it's also as perfect as God Himself. And so when I talk about manuscripts or translations, those are really the result of men. Uh, when I talk about Scripture as it was originally revealed by God and the autographs, those original copies, those, those copies of Scripture, those autographs were as perfect. As God himself is and so I want to affirm that as we get started and also just point out that uh, I think if we were to survey the group we would probably arrive at different conclusions on what passages in John are most challenging I've picked out 15 and uh, I'm gonna take about an hour each and uh, is there dinner provided okay maybe not but no amen on that it's disappointing but Uh, What I I thought we might do is look at four categories of passages. Uh, We're going to put the 15 passages in four categories and evaluate three of them. So so three numbers that matter, four categories, 15 passages, but we're only talking about three. Brother Jay said he needed three points, so we'll do that. And I'll try to think of a poem before we get to the end. Uh, and, And so when you study the gospel accounts, there are a number of challenges And we don't have the challenges we had three years ago with Matthew, uh, because clearly Matthew, as a synoptic account, you have uh, parallels that are very strong in both Mark and Luke. Uh, The vast majority of material in Mark gets repeated in Matthew. Matthew is basically Mark plus the teaching material of our Lord Jesus in five discourses that Matthew is famous for. And so sometimes we might forget that John's a gospel. I think it was uh, Brother Terry or maybe... Uh, someone else today who talked about a bioptic focus how the synoptics present one view of Jesus and then John presents another view of Jesus that may be true but I don't think it's quite that simple uh, because Matthew Mark and Luke all have their own perspective on Jesus even though they clearly complement one another in a way that's perfect there are things that Luke for example tells us about Gentiles or tax collectors or the the resurrection of the widow's son at Nain that none of the other accounts are going to tell us about. And furthermore, there are things that John tells us about that clearly the synoptic gospels also comment on. For example, the miracle in John 6 where Jesus feeds the 5,000. John gives us a perspective there that you don't get in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it is one of those places where you've got to be aware both of what John says and what the parallel passages say. So one of the things that I like to do in my classes over at Fried Hardeman is to talk about how we read the Gospel accounts. We want to read them both vertically and horizontally. Now that has nothing to do with how you might feel right now. Some of you would really like to read horizontally right now and understand that. But what I mean by vertically and horizontally is that we want to let these accounts speak for themselves. Let's let John be John, and Mark be Mark, and Luke be Luke, and Matthew be Matthew. And let's understand that Even in the early church, there was a tendency to try to harmonize these accounts. It was called the Diatessaron. It was a Syriac document that means through the four, and it was so popular that there was a time in early church history that they actually tried to gather those up and destroy them because so many people had read the Diatessaron that they were not familiar with the four accounts as they stand individually. And so I want to make sure that we allow John to be John reading this account vertically. But let's also understand that John is telling the same story That Mark Matthew and Luke told and while there are differences there are also similarities and we've noted a number of those differences already whether it's the prologue or the epilogue whether it's the characters we meet uh, like Nicodemus the woman at the well Lazarus uh, maybe even some of the miracles the uh, wedding feast miracle for example in John 2 1 through 12 you only get in John's gospel and it's really challenging we could have added that text that's not one of my 15 but we could talk about that because uh, most of the time when Jesus does a miracle or a sign, that's John's favorite word, semea, or semeon in the accusative, uh, when he talks about a sign, it's something that's done for the purpose of teaching. And most often, there's teaching associated with a miracle. For example, the discourse where Jesus talks about being the bread of life, that is one of our passages, in John 6, is associated with the feeding of the 5,000. Uh, and so uh, the resurrection and life passage in John 11, I mean, those... Connections there make sense to what's happening in the narrative and so while we read John for John Let's also understand that some of the challenges we find in John are challenges in all four gospel accounts Uh, I was raised to to say there's one gospel in four accounts And so that's I think a good habit and that's one of the things that we recognize as we get into this so uh, One more thing on that and then I'll give you my 15 Uh, Let's make it very clear that the Apostle John was an inspired eyewitness, as Brother Terry pointed out first thing this morning, to these events, and that when we talk about the authorship of Scripture, we're talking about a primary cause, God, the Holy Spirit, and secondary means, these men that are moved to write uh, words in the autograph copies that are perfect. And so, any discussion we have that is transcriptional in nature, maybe a manuscript difference or a questionable passage, and you know the most famous one. In John, that we will be thinking about a little bit this afternoon. Again, we're not talking about... Just two weeks ago at our lectureship at Freed Hardeman, I was asked to speak on the ending of Mark. Now, unfortunately, I think, I'm trying to check on this, that's one of the few that the recording didn't work. Ah, just imagine how... But, you know, one of the things I wanted to say in that, and I did say in that, is that there are no mistakes in Scripture. God made no mistakes in Scripture. Any question about the text of the New Testament... Is a question about the way it's been handled, copied, translated, maybe interpreted. It's not a question of what God wrote. And so in no form or fashion this afternoon are we questioning that or questioning him. So what are my four categories? And again, this is rather subjective, but I want to uh, make it clear, and I I apologize for not having a slideshow this afternoon, but I'll try to speak slowly on this Um, because I need to speak slowly because it takes me a while to write these things down. Here are the four categories. There are doctrinal difficulties. I'm going to give you six passages that I think fall into that category in the Gospel of John. So doctrinal difficulties. There are what I've called intertextual difficulties. Three places where John quotes the Old Testament and it's difficult to know what to make of that. So intertextual difficulties. Uh, third, there are chronological difficulties. There are two of those, chronological difficulties. And then finally, there are transmissional difficulties. I've given you four of those. So six doctrinal passages, three intertextual difficulties, uh, two chronological, and then four transmissional. What I'm going to do this afternoon is read through the list rather quickly and briefly tell you what it what I think is difficult about it. And then I'm going to focus on two doctrinal and one transmissional passage. So let's talk first about the ones I'm not going to spend much time on. Uh, The intertextual difficulties, the three that I mentioned there, let me quickly tell you where I think these come from. The study of biblical intertextuality is not just when the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. It could also be where the prophets make reference to the law or where psalms might make reference to the law. So anytime there's a Bible passage that makes reference to another Bible passage, that's referred to as biblical intertextuality. And there's a whole lot of discussion there about where did they get their source, and did Paul change the wording of that passage any, if it's Paul that we're talking about? Did he respect the original context in which it was spoken? So there are three places, and I'll tell you why these are questionable passages. First, John 3, verse 14. In John 3, verse 14, you have an allusion, and remember that it's not just quotations. It can be an allusion or an echo. Now, those terms come from Richard Hayes, who in his book, Echoes of Scripture and the Letters of Paul, you know, identifies the fact that sometimes you make a passing reference to the Old Testament, you know, like the flood of Noah or uh, creation, and it's not exactly a quotation. Well, in John 3, verse 14, it seems that Jesus there is making reference to The Bronze Serpent event in Numbers 21, verses 4 through 9. Now, it's not as much about how Jesus makes reference to the passage. It's about what are we to make of this language of lifting up. Uh, I think that it's intentional, and the wordplay works either in Aramaic or Greek. Scott Gleaves at Faulkner recently wrote a book, you know, asking the question, Did Jesus Speak Greek? I was asked to review that book for The Gospel Advocate. And Scott's a friend of mine, and I think he did a great job on the book. Personally, I think Jesus primarily taught in Aramaic, but as uh, someone made reference to earlier today, He knew Greek, and He used Greek. Uh, I don't know that it really matters. Unfortunately, all the recordings have been lost, right? But I do think that what we do see in John 3, verse 14, is a play on words. Much like pneuma in John 3 with Nicodemus, could be either spirit or wind. There's clearly a play on words there. And we have that play on words in a few other places. This verb in the Greek, hypsao, uh, to lift up, is used in a few other places in John's Gospel other than in John 3, verse 14. It shows up in John 8, verse 28. And then it also shows up in John 12, verses 32 and 34. question is, what was Jesus talking about when He says, uh, I will be lifted up, And making reference to the bronze serpent in the wilderness in Numbers 21, all who look on me will live. Well, the obvious thought there with the bronze serpent on the standard is the cross. But it's also interesting that you've got a number of parallel passages, especially in the Pauline corpus, where the resurrection is described in that same way. Some have even pointed to the ascension of Jesus, which is referenced by Paul on at least two occasions as being basically an intrinsic glorification of Jesus. And so the reason this question, I think, is difficult is because even though I lean towards the cross, I mean, that death, burial, resurrection event, if you strip the cross or the empty tomb from that narrative, it loses, obviously, the power of that event if you just have a part or the whole. So the answer to this question, is it the cross, is it the resurrection? I I say the answer is yes, but there are some people who are not satisfied with that answer, and I think that's why this intertextual difficulty uh, is one of my 15, and I've got to really talk faster than this. Uh, John, 3, uh, John 10, verse 34, will be a second intertextual passage. Uh, John 10, verse 34, where Jesus quotes Psalm 86, verse 6. And He quotes this uh, as He's being accused, and it's interesting that He quotes exactly from the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. Uh, and He does so, by the way, that's the Old Testament that's most frequently quoted in the New Testament, Matthew and occasionally James and a few others will quote the Hebrew Masoretic text. But most of the time, uh, New Testament writers are quoting the Greek Old Testament. You might remember this is where Jesus plays on the idea of the word God and some being referenced as gods and ask the question, since some men were called gods in Psalm 82, would it be wrong for Jesus to be called a god? And this is one of those places where he astounds uh, his accusers. And I think the point of the passage here in John 10, verse 34, is that Jesus' hearers miss the point, uh, but again, it's a place where Jesus shows their, their lack of unity on the decision of how they would read Psalm 82. Uh, Bruce and Carson and a number of commentaries on this passage point out the fact This could be a reference to judges who were abusing their power in ancient Israel. This could be a reference to angelic beings who were abusing their power in ancient Israel. Personally, I don't think either one of those is the most viable option. It seems that this could just be a general reference to the fact that Israel had abused the law. In the way that the law had been given to them, Israel had abused their authority in responding to God's covenant. I just want to bring that up as a second difficult passage. And the reason it's difficult is because we're not sure what to do with Psalm 82. We're almost as lost with Psalm 82 as Jesus' hearers were, but this is one of those places where they should have shown the kind of humility that we need to show in our hermeneutical approach to the New Testament. And then the last one here quickly in this category would be John 19, verse 24. John 19, verse 24, where at the cross, you have Psalm 22, verse 18 referenced. John 19, verse 24, where you have a quotation of Psalm 2 uh, 22, verse 18. By the way, in the Greek Old Testament, that reference is Psalm 21, verse 9. The numbering is different, so uh, don't let that uh, mislead you. I think the reason this is significant is because there's a discussion about when the Old Testament gets quoted in the New Testament, was Jesus just making reference to that one passage, or was He quoting the context of the fuller psalm? When you read Psalm 22, clearly there's more to that psalm when you think about the cross event than just My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you read the whole psalm, uh, the language there about being surrounded by the bulls of Bashan, they're dividing his garments, them being able to see his bones because of uh, his being emaciated, all of that language sounds like the cross. And part of the beauty of Psalm 22 is that it's written by David as he's being surrounded by his enemies, but Jesus can take the language David used, which is appropriate, given that son of David language we see in the New Testament, and basically re-signify it for his own experience. I'm now experiencing the same thing that my ancestor, King David, was experiencing as he was surrounded by his enemies. And so you might wonder, why would you put that under a difficult passage? Well, it's just because with all of the Davidic typology we see in the New Testament, it's sometimes difficult to know, is Jesus just referring to one particular idea from Psalm 22, or was He referring to the fuller context of Psalm 22? I lean towards the fuller context. I think it's highly likely that Jesus was working with a very literate group of people, uh, especially Jewish men, but even God-fearing Gentiles who would have have had a level of familiarity with the text of Scripture that would astound most God-fearing people today. You see this even in scribal activity, the way that when they're copying Scripture, they know the parallels to these verses. They can harmonize Scripture quickly Some have argued maybe it's because they have some kind of written source that guides them in that, but we know that male and female scribes in the early church have a high regard for Scripture, and they can quote it, as we were mentioning in the last hour, and they can uh, harmonize that as they are copying a text. It's one of the global tendencies we see from the 3rd to 16th centuries in manuscript tradition. Now, I'm going to have to speed up on the chronological difficulties. Here are the two. You know these already. The first would be the cleansing of the temple in John 2 13 through 25. When did that happen? In the synoptic parallels, that happens when? At the end of Jesus' life, right there during Passion Week, as some have referred to that event. In John, it comes very early in his gospel. Why? Some argue that John was trying to make a point. Maybe, you know, Carson argues for sort of this old to new imagery. In John 2 through 4, you have new wine. Uh, new, uh, let's see, new temple, new birth, and uh, new water, living water. And so maybe it's the newness emphasis, and John just wanted to arrange it this way to make a particular point. I believe D.A. Carson draws the conclusion that it happened twice, or at least opens the door that perhaps at the beginning of Jesus' ministry there's a cleansing of the temple, and knowing how huge that area is after Herod's expansion, is it possible that early on in his ministry there's a cleansing of the temple, like you get reported in John 2, 13-25? And then again, near the end of his ministry, there's a second cleansing. Regardless of what you do there, there is some tension with the relationship between the synoptic report of the cleansing of the temple and what's happening here in John 2, 13-25. The other obvious chronological question is Passover. When did Jesus die? Was it on the eve of Passover or was it on Passover? And this is another place where you get the question raised because it seems like in John's Gospel, Jesus is the Passover lamb. I mean, that imagery is set up. Paul even makes reference to this idea over in 1 Corinthians. Or uh, does he die on the eve of Passover? Uh, Was Passover celebrated... Uh, perhaps what year did this occur there's a lot of discussion about that I mean it starts as early as John 13 with the Passover language there and really goes all the way through the passion event in John 19 and so those would be the two big difficult chronological questions that often get brought up and discussed uh, when you compare John with the synoptic accounts okay uh, I'm really sorry to have to move on so quickly I wish we could take a lot longer on that but doctrinal difficulties uh, here are the six. I'm going to list them, and then I'll tell you that we're going to come back to two of these after I give you the transmissional ones. Uh, I've, I've grouped two passages together, John 3, 3-5, and John 6, 52-56. This is one we're going to come back to. John 3, 3-5, through 5, and John 6, 52-56. And the reason I think these two passages are difficult is over the question that you know gets raised a lot in John, Did John ever make reference to Christian baptism and the Lord's Supper? When he talked to Nicodemus, given the fact this is pre-Pentecost, could Christian baptism have been in that equation? And given the fact this is pre-Last Supper, could Lord's Supper language have been in the equation in John 6? We're going to come back to that, but that's one of the six. The next one would be John 6, verse 44, and the language of Jesus drawing all people to Himself. That's not a difficult passage per se, But the historical interpretation of that passage has caused a lot of consternation, uh, especially with five-petal Calvinists, you know, the tulip idea. Uh, What's interesting about John 6 is that often this passage is used to suggest there's this draw and Jesus selects, you know, uh, in election the ones that he wants. But what's interesting about the language that surrounds that verse, again, John 6, verse 44 is the language of personal responsibility, choice, and faith. And so if taken in balance, of course Jesus takes the initiative, just like our Father did. The the context of John 6, however, if anything, in the context of the feeding of the 5,000 and them wanting to take Jesus by force and make Him their King, makes it very clear that human free will is just as important as God's sovereignty in terms of the picture of salvation. It's the language of Ephesians 2. We're saved by grace, God's initiative, through faith, human responsibility. If you take either one of those pieces away from that, it's not salvation. And so that balance in John six is really important. Man, we need more time on that. Uh, John nine verse thirty one would be the third one here. Actually, I guess I counted uh, I counted those John three and John six together, so that was two. So this will be the fourth one, John nine verse thirty one, and the question of whether God hears sinners. You might remember this is the uh, famous encounter jesus has with the man born blind and we've talked a lot about journeys of faith seeing the way the samaritan woman journeys brother Jay mentioned or seeing the way that uh, nicodemus john 3 john 7 john 19 journeys well i think you see also a journey in john 9 uh, potentially now it's not as clear a picture as we get in some of those others uh, context, But here the man says, as he's being accused by those who want to know how this happened, he says sort of off, off the cuff, we know that God does not hear sinners. And uh, that's generated a lot of discussion in theological circles. It's kind of like one time I preached as a young, younger man uh, from Job. And I think it was Bildad, the height, that I was quoting. And, uh, you know, I thought it was a great sermon, and I got through, and some sweet sister in Christ came out and said, I, I don't want to hurt your feelings, but you do know that the Lord spoke uh, at the end of this book, and everything that you said this morning, God rebuked. Oh, that's an important point to make note of in the full context of the book of Job. So uh, sometimes these, these, these kinds of statements that get made by those who are observing the things that are happening here can lead people to take what the man says in John 9, verse 31, and and run with that. What's interesting is there are a number of places that indicate that those who are penitent and want to turn to God can be heard in that moment of penitence, especially in the wisdom literature of the Old Testament or even in the episode of uh, Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And so that's another difficult passage, again, because of the way it's been interpreted. Uh, Two more, John 10, verse 16. You know this passage well. I have other sheep not of this fold. Now, uh, not only is this sometimes used, unfortunately, to defend denominationalism, uh, this is also used to suggest that maybe there are other Jews that could be saved outside of Jesus. Maybe that there are other Christians who are scattered uh, who Jesus is making reference to. My family and I were driving back from Northern California about a year ago, and we toured the uh, Mormon Convention Center. In Salt Lake City and I heard this verse more than any other Bible verse in that setting because they claim to be the other sheep not of this fold so this verse gets used in a lot of creative ways but contextually that's why I've put it in the difficult category but contextually we know the answer don't we it's Gentiles I think the context of John makes that clear look at John 11:51 51 and 52 I think there in that uh, passage you have an indication that it's very clear that uh, Jesus' eye is eventually on the Gentiles. You know, Peter struggles with this in Galatians 2, but Peter should have learned from the Syrophoenician woman or maybe even what happened with Legion in Mark 5, 1 through 20 over at Decapolis that Jesus had an eye on the Gentiles already, even though he was sent to the lost sheep of the household of Israel. Uh, One more, uh, and we'll come back to this one too, Lord willing. Wow, we'll have to do so quickly. This, for me, is uh, one of the most challenging uh, passages. It's in John 20, verse 22, when uh, Jesus breathed on His disciples and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. What, what's that about? Is that a Johannine Pentecost? You know, John Calvin's really creative here, and he says, Well, in John 20, the disciples were sprinkled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, they were saturated with the Holy Spirit. Everybody loves alliteration, but I'm more confused than I was before you started talking, John. Uh, and so we're going to come back to John 3 and 6 and then John 20. But I've got to quickly give you the other four passages or I will have failed in this mission. Uh, there are four transmissional difficulties in John. You know the story of the adulterous woman. That's the big one, John 7, through 8:11. Uh, we're going to spend some time on that if time allows and we'll make time for it. But there are three others that get a lot of attention because of the impact they make on English translations. I find that generally, even though I enjoy uh, evaluating manuscripts, and I'll tell you why I do this, uh, I'm a restorationist. I'm interested in being a part of the church of God's intent, and I'm interested in reading the text of God's intent. And I'm not going to marry a translation. I'm not going to marry a manuscript. I want to know how the Bible originally read, and I'm just as passionate about that as I am about restoring the church of God's intent. And I think we've got to think about that in a world where some say, and here's the challenge, if I could just get on a soapbox for 30 seconds, we've got people in our pews with study Bibles everywhere. And some study Bibles in this passage are going to say, the earliest and best manuscripts do not include this story. And that's true. Some are going to have, you know, study Bibles that are going to say, the majority of manuscripts do include this story. And that's true. So what do we let them do? Well, put on the gloves and slug it out after the fellowship meal in the parking lot. Well, no, but we've got to give them some guidance on this because depending on the perspective of the editors of that study Bible, whether they're majority text people which say, well, you know, from the 9th to 16th centuries, most manuscripts support this, or whether they're eclectic text people who say, well, the earliest and best manuscripts don't include it. I say, look at all of those texts. Count them, look at, not count them, weigh them all from the 3rd to 16th centuries and, and let's be as interested in having the text that God gave as we are in being the church that God intended for us to be. The three others are John 1, verse 18. I was off the soapbox. John 1, verse 18. Is the language here monogenes weos, only begotten, or I would prefer to translate that, unique, uh, son, or monogenes theos, one-of-a-kind God? Now, the Greek text, edited uh, both in the U.S. and in Germany, UBS 5, Nestle Aland 28, prefers God, only begotten God. What's interesting is there are only two translations that i found, mainstream English translations that read that way, but they are pretty influential in most of our congregations, the ESV and the New American Standard. Just about every other translation says only begotten Son, Well, that's great language. That's John 3.16. That's everywhere in John. The question is, which is most original? And the only reason I bring it up is most textual variants fly under the radar unless they show up, and you got Sister Betty and Sister Wilma sitting right next to each other, and they compare Bibles. This is the Flintstone Church. They compare Bibles, and they realize there's a difference. That's when this discussion matters. John 1.18 is one of those passages we better be prepared to talk about Uh, there's evidence that supports both. Harmonization leans towards Son. It's hard not to prefer God, which will be a pretty powerful statement about Jesus at the end of John's prologue. A monotheist Jew says Jesus is God. Now that, for me, is more powerful than an empty tomb or eyewitness testimony. Monotheist Jews confessing that this man they spent three years with in public ministry is God. Who could you say that about? They know this man. That's powerful evidence. I'm not dismissing the empty tomb. I'm just saying that's not the only place we have to go, apologist, right? Uh, we've also got John 5, 3, and 4. What happened at the pool? First of all, what's the pool's name? Well, is it Bethsaida, Bethesda, or Bethzatha? Because manuscripts support all three. Greek text supports Bethzatha, but no English translation I found calls it that. We like Bethesda because it means House of Mercy, a great place for a military hospital, right, in Maryland. We like Bethesda because it's the name of a village. So there's a question about what the pool is named, and some translations will vary there. But then there's a question of, did an angel really come down and stir the water? Because the ESV omits that. It omits the second half of verse 3 and verse 4, as well does the NIV. Now clearly, that's what they thought. That's why they were around the pool. I think theologically it's interesting to think about God kind of having a, uh, I don't want to say it that way. It's interesting to think about first one in gets healed. It's almost like the reverse of Russian roulette. The water stirs, first one in's healed. That just doesn't fit with what we learn about God. I think it's highly likely that this is a good description of what they believed was happening when the water was stirred. I preached on this in Baton Rouge one time, and we had a young man who was physically disabled, and I didn't know that this was his favorite passage and his mother's favorite passage, because they had slept, they had gone to bed at night, dreaming of their water in their bathtub being stirred and him being able to get in and be healed. Well, I don't want to discount that cry and prayer for healing, but the power was not in the pool; the power was in the Lord. And any time, it's like the wedding feast. If we focus only on the wine and fail to see that Jesus turned the water into wine, or whatever that was, Welch's, I mean, then, then we've missed the point of John 2, 1 through 12. That's a side sermon. And then uh, finally, John 20, verse 31. Uh, Dr. Black referred to this earlier, the purpose statement. You know, is it present subjunctive or error subjunctive? Here's the good thing to think about. I don't know of any English translations that really mess with the language there because the subjunctive mood is the potential mood and it's always translated may or might. And so whether it's present or aorist, you know, some of that's built on the false assumption that present is always continuous. It can be undefined verbal aspect, but to make a long story longer, uh, the only English translation I know of, and it's not even a translation. If you're using the new living translation or the NLT, understand that that is basically a revision of a popular paraphrase Bible from the 1970s called the Living Bible. And so they've packaged it as a translation, but it's basically an updated version of something that was like the message 40 years ago. And the New Living Translation here in John 20, 31 says, that you may continue to believe. That's the only one I found where it actually impacts the text of Revelation. Of, uh, Of an English translation and so it it may not be quite as important to people on the pews as it is to us to think about the purpose of John but that is one of my uh, four so there are the 15 now I think I'm supposed to be through in five minutes is that right so here's what we're gonna do I'm gonna take a minute and a half on three passages that I think are really uh, important I'm kidding I'll take a little bit longer everybody else has run over so I'm gonna go for it just I know we've got a ways to travel Let's start with the baptism, Lord's Supper language in John 3 and John 6. I wrote a paper uh, at a graduate school other than the one I'm teaching at now and uh, got ripped to shreds on this a few years ago. So it's been kind of a thorn in my flesh ever since, and I'll try not to take that out on anybody today. <laughs> but. The the popular response when we read Jesus talking about one must be born of water and the Spirit in John 3, or when Jesus says, take, eat, this is my flesh, drink, this is my blood in John 6, of most major commentaries is to say there's no way Jesus was talking about baptism or the Lord's Supper. Now, first of all, Jesus is talking about baptism. The question is, is it John's baptism or Christian baptism? Because John's baptism is alive and well when he's talking to Nicodemus in John 3. And then with the Lord's Supper language, you know, well, it can't be the Lord's Supper because the Last Supper hasn't happened yet, and Jesus and these participants would not have known about our observance of the Lord's Supper yet in John 6. Well, they certainly knew about Passover, and remember that the Lord's Supper is a a fulfillment of Passover from Exodus 12. Here's the thing, though, hermeneutically, I think we've got to think about here. While we focus on what Jesus actually said to Nicodemus, and I believe John has historically recorded that accurately, and while we think about what Jesus said to the crowds in John 6 about take, eat, this is my flesh, drink, this is my blood, think about John's readers, too. I date John to 85 A.D. Dr. Black may be right, it might be the 90s. None of us were there. Uh, I lean towards 85 because I think you've got to have some time to develop before you get to the Johannine epistles. And 1 John, to me, feels like a response to an overdeveloped view of Christ in the Gospel of John. I think people, this is from Raymond Brown, by the way, a famous 20th century Catholic scholar who wrote the Anchor Bible uh, commentary on the epistles of John, who says, Jesus is spoken of with such high language in John that 1 John is written to basically remind people who've distorted that, that Jesus really did come in the flesh. I mean, that's what... 1 John's a letter about Jesus, and it's a a letter about Jesus' incarnation, right? That speaks to the variant in 1 John 5, 7, and 8, the three that bear witness on earth, the uh, water, spirit, and blood. Those are all about the incarnation of Jesus, the way His ministry began with baptism, the way it ends with the cross, and who led His ministry from start to finish, the Holy Spirit. I mean, read the Gospel of Luke. And so uh, I I dated in in the uh, mid-'80s, but what's interesting about this whole discussion, if that's right or if the 90s are right, It seems to me that by the time people are reading John 3 and John 6, they've been baptizing in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins for roughly 55 years. They've been observing the Lord's Supper every first day of the week for over five decades. And so, yeah, when we ask the question, what did Jesus say, and what did it mean to Nicodemus and the crowd in John 6, we've got to also ask, this is a piece of literature, and John tells us he's biased His purpose is to persuade his readers that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so when they read about this, I think they think about Christian baptism and the Lord's Supper. And hermeneutically, we've got to focus on both of those. What did Jesus say and what did John intend for his readers to understand about what Jesus said? So in the context of what Jesus said to Nicodemus, John's baptism. But what did John write and his readers read? Christian baptism. In the context of what John said to the crowd in John 6... Or Jesus said to the crowd in John 6, maybe Passover, because that language in rabbinic tradition shows up there in a few places. But when John's readers start reading that in the 80s or 90s, they're thinking about what they do every Sunday. And I don't know why we have to sort of draw battle lines there and suggest that they couldn't have thought about baptism or the Lord's Supper. Well, when did John write this book? And who first read this book? How could they not think about the Lord's Supper when Jesus says, take eat, this is my body. Take drink, this is my blood, right? All right. Um, Jesus breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. John 20, verse 22. Now, there's a a play on words, just like in John 3, because spirit, breath, and wind all come from pneuma. Just like ruach in Hebrew. Uh, There's a play on words there. And I think that's intentional. You know, receive the Spirit. They would have gotten that. I think it doesn't work as well in Aramaic, quite frankly. So this might be uh, an argument in favor of Dr. Gleave's position, that maybe Jesus was speaking Greek, because the play on words here doesn't work as well in Aramaic. Now here's what happens. Some say, well, this is not the Holy Spirit, because there's not a definite article there. Uh, Brother Jay quoted a Greek word earlier, hogwash, Uh, I like to quote the Greek word balone. It's spelled with an eta at the very end. Um, I don't want to offend anybody, but the Holy Spirit is referenced in an anarthrous construction without the article several times in the New Testament. Because sometimes it's intentional that a writer will not use the article here and use an article there to connect back to the noun here that has no article. It's called the anarthrous article. No, no, it's called the uh, anaphoric article. It refers back to a previous noun that does not have an article so any argument that says well this is not the spirit because it lacks an article is not an argument that can be sustained based on syntax or grammar what about Calvin saying that they were sprinkled here and saturated there in Acts 2 Uh, what about some liberal scholars who say well John didn't really know if the Pentecost experience was going to be described adequately by Luke so he wanted to make allusion to it here. Well, the problem here is you're talking about a completely different setting and, most importantly, a completely different result. When I teach on John 20, here's the question that I ask. What changed? What changed? What changed in Acts 2 when they were baptized by the Holy Spirit? Everything changed. Their behavior changed. Their language changed. The growth of the church changed. When you think about John 20, this scene, if they receive a full measure, full apostolic measure of the Holy Spirit, or even a partial measure, some say, well, it's just a down payment here and it's realized over there. What's the problem with that? Well, what changed? From this point forward, you've got these disciples struggling just like they've been struggling. Nothing changes. This, this, this group of disciples go fishing in the next chapter. Well, let's go fishing. This group of disciples standing around the charcoal fire with Jesus have to be reminded who Jesus is. Jesus has to say to Peter three times, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And and remind Peter that when he's asking, well, what about him? Pointing at John when he finds out he's going to be martyred. Does that sound like a group of people who've been filled with an apostolic measure of the Holy Spirit? So before we go saying, well, when Jesus breathes on them in John 20 and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Clearly, this was just like Acts 2. My number one question is, what changed? And so what is this? Uh, I believe it's a symbolic gesture that points forward as a promise to what's going to happen not many days from now. I mean, read Acts 1. Stay in Jerusalem not many days from now. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And you see the result of that early on in Acts 2 in a way that is immediate and powerful and forceful. This is a difficult passage, but I think if we ask the question, what changed? Uh, It doesn't necessarily make it easy to explain what happened but one thing we can make clear is that it's not an Acts 2-like experience. Comparing John 20, to Acts 2, you know, is like comparing uh, my feeble effort to please God to what it is he actually intends for us to be. Right? And uh, without grace and our response to the blood of Jesus in faith, uh, nothing we would attempt would be uh, held in any value. Right? Uh, okay. I've gone 5 minutes over. I think we have about 10 minutes before I'm going to get a big hooks going to come out and uh the hypocritical adulterer, John 7:53 through 8:11. Now, uh, the uh, adulterous woman, the story of the adulterous woman, John 7:53 through 8:11. Boy, this is a fun one to talk about because people when you talk about Bible translations you're talking about people's family members and the last thing I ever want to do is go into a congregation and suggest that their Bible is not good enough the best Bible is a red Bible right and so if I find out that you've got a King James in your pew I'm gonna preach from the King James if I find out you have a New American Standard in your pew I'm gonna preach from the New American Standard which is what we used in Baton Rouge when I was at Goodwood now the fact of the matter is what you see people say about this passage on the one hand regarding the manuscript evidence is generally true uh, I could give you a long list of uh, the earliest Greek manuscripts. The earliest manuscript fragment of John we have is P52. It dates back to about 150, 175. Some dated earlier than that, but they're, uh, they're a little bit optimistic, I think, uh, with that. But P66, dating to around 200, does not include this. Neither does P75 from the early 3rd century nor do the the oldest complete copies of the New Testament we have. Codex Sinaiticus from the 4th century, Vaticanus from the 4th century, Alexandrinus from the 5th century. Basically, this story in its full form makes its first appearance in a 5th century manuscript called Codex Biza, or D. So, a lot of scholarship says, well, clearly this story is not original to the text of John. There's one big problem with that, probably more than one. Uh, the way that you make sure that stories like this are preserved because they are true is to preserve them as a unit and make sure that they are affixed to the text of the New Testament. And so scholarship sometimes has a way of saying, well, this is only in manuscripts from the 5th century on. By the way, there are some early versions copies um, translations of scripture and patristic sources that might go back even earlier than the fifth century that include this uh the story of the adulterous woman but the other thing to make note of here is the fact that this story as a whole this unit gets moved and shows up in other places Uh, i I won't exhaust you with the list but uh, this story shows up after verse 36 in john 7 in a 12th century manuscript This story shows up in an early uh, translation of the New Testament after 7, verse 44. There are a few uh, manuscripts going back to the 9th century that put this at the very end of John's Gospel, after John 21, verse 25. Then uh, you have some manuscripts that put this in Luke in a few places. And so while it's easy for scholars... To say well the earliest manuscripts don't include it we're talking about a difference between 3rd century and 5th century which is not all that great a gap in time and the fact uh, is that this story shows up in a lot of other places as an entire unit now there are a lot of variants within the story kind of like in the longer ending of Mark that raise questions about how this story held together as a unit uh, throughout time But here's the big point I want to make Um, With all of those questions, apologists sometimes will point out things like this. Well, no doctrine hangs on this passage. There's nothing inconsistent in this passage about Jesus or the work of the early church. This passage does not have the characteristics of apocryphal works, in other words, false works that would have been known among early Christians. And while all of that is true, this story has some really early attestation. You know, this story is told really early and it's kept together as a unit and so unfortunately when we talk about this sometimes it's presented like this here are your two options either it belongs or it doesn't well there's actually a third option because it's not just a question of does it belong right here or it doesn't the third option is uh, does it belong maybe in the text even if it's not originally right here And I think what you see in the early manuscript tradition, our earliest witnesses, is what I believe. I'm just going to tell you, this is what I believe. This is as true a story as the passage that precedes it or follows it. This is historical. It really happened. Jesus really stooped down. This woman is really accused of adultery. I know that there are tons of people who immediately think, well, that is the craziest thought I've ever heard. But the actual extent evidence suggests this was believed to be, by the earliest handlers of Scripture, a true event from the life of Jesus. I would say that if you were to ask me, is it, is it a true story? Absolutely. Is everything in this story uh, reflective of something Jesus really did and really said? Absolutely. Did it originally fit right here in John's Gospel? I just don't know. Uh, no one knows. We've got some people who are pretty confident they know, but they've never seen the autograph either. And so I think we show some humility here. But don't go ripping this out of the Bible. You know why the RSV caught so much flack? Which, by the way, the ESV is kind of RSV 2.0. Don't tell anybody that, but read the preface. I mean, the RSV, the KJV, and the ASV are the forebearers of the ESV. We just repackage it. But the reason the RSV caught so much flack, they cut this out. There was actually a Baptist minister in North Carolina who took a blowtorch on a Sunday morning. And burned his RSV put it in a metal box and mailed it back that's how much he loved the RSV okay I don't think that we're in the business of saying cut it out the Greek New Testament puts it in double brackets which means they don't think it belongs and they put it in double brackets and they give it an a reading Bruce Metzger would say that's as confident as we could possibly be that it's not original but they're not saying it's not something that really happened they're just saying it's not something that was originally right here and so can i can i affirm that this is true and that it really happened and we ought to preach it and think about it yeah can i affirm that it originally was in this spot right after john 752 i can't uh, and if you and if you close the gap between john 7:52 through 8:12, a lot of people have pointed out the similarities the way that that comes together and the fact another thing that's often pointed out is that the vocabulary of this story feels more like luke which might explain why a lot of scribes put it there. And so I think it's, uh, you know what this is a good opportunity for us to do? It's a good opportunity for us to talk about how we got the Bible. I I think the days of just putting a plan of salvation on a billboard, that's still a good thing to do, but there are going to be more people than there used to be, as we've been kind of talking about this young generation, we're all wicked, right? There there are more people than there used to be who would look at that billboard and say, so what? I can't trust the Bible. So how many classes have we had about how we got the Bible? How many people could talk about manuscripts and translations and transmission and translation and point out the fact that God made no mistake. Inspiration is perfect. We have exactly what he wanted us to have. Canonization is perfect. What's not perfect? People, the way we copied it and the way we translated it. And so this is a discussion that's not about God. It's about man. And women like the female scribe thecla she made mistakes too uh, who didn't copy it perfectly and didn't translate it perfectly okay I was kidding about the young thing I know that y'all love us but sometimes I get a little tired of that all right uh I think we're out of time I don't know are we out of time we're over time take one question (laughs) (laughs) for the stand yes sir Yeah. You had one person who answered it, so oh, this is a theological truth. Jesus was checking the first. Another person answered and said, This was an emotional truth, this is what Jesus felt on the cross. And a third person answered it and said uh that Jesus was quoting or the possibility that Jesus was quoting the entire uh the entirety of Psalm twenty two. You didn't get the answer to that so until <laughs> we Well, I don't know why we have to separate theology from emotion Uh, clearly there's an intertextual component there in terms of the fact that Jesus was quoting Psalm 22 but I don't believe he was doing so to show off his knowledge of the Psalter I think he's doing so to make it very clear that uh, he had been alienated and bore the burdens in the same way that his forebearer had Uh, and so I think the answer to that question is yes In all sincerity, I don't know that we have to put these false, I think it's a false dichotomy to try to separate and read into that, you know, some kind of Christological answer to was Jesus abandoned at the cross? And I think a lot of that's more about systematic theology than it is biblical exegesis, in my opinion. Sorry, you had a question next. Yeah, we had Well, we're told he was full of the Holy Spirit, but, well, but he, yeah. <laughs> instead of me, he was speaking by right, right, And certainly the blind man we don't see is he healed. Right. To speak. So he says that because maybe the Judaism at the time believes that. But I'm like you. We have plenty of examples in the Old Testament where they hear the sinner and everybody in the Bible is a sinner. And even I'm a sinner. Right. So that means God doesn't hear my prayer. I think there is a truth to the idea that I cannot live in willful rebellion against God. Uh, and and my prayer avail anything but if i'm penitent and want to come back to him how else will i be hurt and i think you've got a lot of examples of that that we can look at there are several hands and i'm not sure who's next brother david yes sir yes i don't know how they could keep from it well, But didn't Jesus also say in John 7, the spirit had not yet been given? Right. So how would he ask Nicodemus to be born of something that hadn't yet been given? I think that's an internal change. The spirit there is subject of not big-ass spirit, little S spirit. That it's an external and internal. It's a change, like Peter describes in 1 Peter 3 20 and 21. It's not a removal of filth from the flesh, but the cleansing of a pure conscience before God. So I, I don't know how um, Nicodemus could have been born of the Holy Spirit pre Acts 2, uh, because we read in John 7. Uh, John's baptism, yes, minus the Holy Spirit. So there any big there's big S in Acts 2, and there's a promise of big Spirit in the uh, farewell discourse of John 14 through 17. Big S in John 3? I don't believe so. so the of... Titus 2:11 through 15. Uh, I do think that what Jesus was foreshadowing is the fulfillment we find in the spirit, but I don't see Jesus asking Nicodemus to be baptized into one who had not yet been given, and that John 7 passage for me is a big stumbling block there. That's just that's just me. I do think the exegetical task is difficult because we try to figure out when Jesus said it, who he said it to, but I think sometimes I've forgotten who John was writing to, and we shouldn't uh ignore either one of those perspectives there. Brother Ron, did you have a Yeah we go back to the quotation from Psalm 22. i the number here, so Michael you that. I want to give God the credit uh, for not only foreseeing what was going to occur at the cross, but for speaking with one voice. I think that white page in between the Old and New Testament has become an unfortunate divide in our thinking, uh, because Jesus does come to fulfill the law, Matthew five seventeen, but there's continuity between the testaments. There's continuity in, in. I mean, how would you understand the message of Hebrews without Leviticus? And so. There's, there's continuity there, and I don't know that uh, there's any chance involved in what Jesus did with what He said from the cross, especially the two psalms that he quotes. Oh Well, there's theology from above and theology from below. And I, I can't understand theology from above completely, but theology from below scares me because it becomes, you, know, me creating a Christ in my own image. And that's not the Christ I want to serve. I'm not good enough, right? So I think sometimes it's easy to discuss where did this come from and how did Jesus change it and where did, why did he use it here? Uh, but at some point, i got to walk by faith and just determine, not blind faith, but just determine that Jesus knew exactly what Scripture needed to be alluded to. And for those of us who go back and read Psalm 22, we're in for a real treat. Uh, And I think 22 and 23 are put together for a reason in that first book of Psalms, where you go from the valley of despair to the Lord is my shepherd. It's hard for me to preach Psalm 23 without dabbling a little bit in Psalm 22, but that's just my own weird view on that. I hope I'm okay, Andrew. Yes, Yes, sir. Right. Or, you know, in words, you four score and really twenty years time, ago. Really right. Deliverance. right. Right. Now, everything's falling apart, but it talks about deliverance right. The way he did the the yeah, Klaus Westerholm, the German theologian, said that every lament psalm has a structure. It starts with a cry to God for help. It describes the evildoer. And then third, it praises God for his deliverance before it even happens. And, uh, And it's interesting to me, this is is something that I love to think about, that the longest string of quotations in the New Testament from the Old Testament is in Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. And that it is basically uh, eight parts of lament psalms or lament passages from Isaiah, and that every one of those quotes the description of the evildoer from those lamentation contexts in the Old Testament. And the irony is, in those passages, the evildoer... Or the Gentiles. In Romans 3, the evildoer is the Jew and the Gentile who are alienated from God. So it's almost like Paul takes the greatest hits of the lamentation language of the Old Testament and he turns it on the people who used to use that against the Gentiles to say, you are now, you know, all, you've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God before you get that good news. So I do think there's there's power in paying attention to where it comes from and how it fits into what how it originally fit into the context of the Old Testament where it's used. I, I've got, yes, sir, one more. And I'm sorry, I've taken too much of your time. <laughs> just, one, just one quick one. Uh, to the quotation of Psalm 82 and, and John 10, are you familiar with Michael Hachsworth's book uh, of the unseen States? I'm not. History, uh, uh, I'm sorry. I, I was hoping to get some thoughts. I'm not. Way through, and quite honestly, my mind swimming a little bit. I, uh... I need to read it, but I've not, I've not looked at it. I want to thank you for uh, bearing with me, and it's just been an encouraging day to be a part of. Andrew.